catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. If you enjoy listening to Corology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Corology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Corology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Corology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 46. And you know, I think I see this sort of reclamation of prayer as a part of these very needed campaigns to say to uh, the factions of the church that have claimed them for far too long, like, no, this doesn't belong to you. This was never yours and you're not even using it in the right way. Kenji Kiramitsu is a writer and a Master of Divinity student living in Chicago. He's a queer fifth-generation Japanese-American and serves on the board of the Japanese-American Citizens League and the Reformation Project. Kenji believes that our worship and our prayers and our way of living are all intimately intertwined, and that what we do in our prayer affects our beliefs, which in turn affects our way of being in the world. His new book, A Booklet of Uncommon Prayers, explores these ideas as a collection of colics for the Black Lives Matter movement and beyond. Every time I sit down for a conversation with Kenji, I leave in awe of his wisdom. And so I'm really excited to have been able to record one of those conversations uh, and that y'all get to listen in on it. Uh, we talk a lot about prayer in this episode, especially especially prayer as a means of resistance, prayer as a way of standing up to oppression and as reclaiming our places within the church, within culture. I will say, uh, if you're listening to this episode and are unfamiliar with uh, some ideas in critical race theory uh, or unfamiliar with the concept of whiteness, uh, some of those ideas, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to episode three uh, with Dr. D'Angelo before proceeding with this episode, because that kind of lays some good groundwork for a lot of the concepts that Kenji discusses. So go listen to that now, or if you listen to this episode and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? Uh, Episode three is a really good resource uh, to help kind of understand some of the basics. Let's go ahead and dive in. Kenji, good morning. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, of course. It's good to have you. So to start, how would you say that you identify? uh, And then how has your faith helped form that identity? Yes, thank you. Um, Let's see. I would identify as mixed race, fifth generation, bisexual, Japanese-American Christian. And my faith has helped me inform some of those identities by reminding me that I am fearfully and wonderfully made by God and that each of my identities is not something uh, that's a burden, but something through which the divine can be felt and shared with other people. Yeah. I feel like... I would imagine that that probably took a while to arrive at that. Absolutely. And I'm curious about that. What what was that journey like for you? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I would say that it's it's taken a while to get to a point where I feel comfortable celebrating the identities that uh, are not dominant in society in terms of race, in terms of sexuality, uh, even in terms of how I view my faith. And it's also a struggle that I sort of refine myself in every day to try and affirm the parts of me that I don't see celebrated um, around me and in the church and in the world. So it's definitely been a long journey that I'm still daily wrestling with. And something that's sort of helped with that, I think, has been uh, not only representation in popular media and the like, but 
real intense conversations with friends and other co-conspirators in and outside of the church who are struggling with some of these same things and trying to catch a glimpse of, of themselves in the face of God as well. Yeah, because, I mean, that that celebration of those parts of ourselves that aren't celebrated. Yes. Um, that is an act of standing up and and fighting back and and yes that takes a lot of work (laughs) yes and you know i i feel for like i feel bad almost for folks who find their salient identities overrepresented oversaturated and celebrated in all public sectors because this this instills a sense of um, arrogance and pride and superiority uh, that those folks are going to have to spend time unpacking that, for instance, me as a, as a man, I'm going to have to spend time unpacking the internalized sense of my gender superiority. But I, I am grateful for, at least in, in terms of some other identities, to be on the bottom end where instead of trying to deconstruct pride and supremacy, I'm, I'm sort of scheming with other people and trying to build solidarity and community and self-confidence. And that feels like a like a painful position to be in sometimes, but it's also it's also very affirming. Yeah, I would imagine it's that it's that both end of like it comes with a cost and a very real cost. Mm. Yeah, um, and there's I'm I'm imagining for myself for being gay. Um, that's that's what I can identify with, and there's like a sense of gratitude present though too yes yes that back and forth (laughs) yes i think you know justin lee at gcn a couple of years ago gave a remark that you know he was talking really pushing on on issues of race and racism and he said something like if i wasn't gay would i even be thinking about this sort of thing he's something like that and i i can resonate with that very much if it's i almost again feel bad for folks who's life experiences and identities have confined them to this insularity that doesn't let them engage with suffering and with people around them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. Engage with suffering because I, we, I just had uh, Rachel Virginia Hester on the podcast a few episodes ago and Mm -hmm. something that she was talking a lot about was the role of lament and grief and, and engaging in suffering and, and how, our wider culture, especially white culture, has kind of lost the ability to do that. Yeah. Um, and and I'm curious about that of of how how would you how would you say like marginalized identity and suffering, acknowledging suffering, if it feels like they go hand in hand in a way. Mm. Yeah, I that's a good question. I think it's I think it's crucial that folks with marginalized identities are able to acknowledge their own suffering. Um, I, I think to the times of my life when I was really in the depths of depression. For me, this was this was mostly during high school. And I think part of that state came from the fact that I was denying and suppressing and not allowing any honest, legitimate expression of the grief and the suffering I was feeling about uh, pain around my parents' separation or my family uh, or any of the other traumas that I, I wasn't even able to acknowledge in myself. So... At the very least, I think there's a relationship between acknowledging suffering and a sort of healing as, as people with marginalized identities from the violences inflicted by dominant society. But I'm not exactly sure what the relationship there is other than the sense of catharsis. And once you are able to tap into your own pain, uh, perhaps there's a way to enter more into the suffering of others as well. That, make, that makes sense to me from like a psychological perspective of if mm. if we're pushing away pain or pushing pain into other people projecting it then it makes it next to impossible for us to see it in ourselves mm. um, and as we take a hard look at ourselves and and acknowledge the things in ourselves of course that pain comes rushing back and we have to deal with it um, mm. and it makes for more holistic being yeah. Um, so this is a little bit of a pivot, um, but you yeah, just sure. you just published a book, um, a, yes, a book of prayers, and it's beautiful. The booklet of uncommon prayer, and 
I was wondering if we could maybe talk about prayer a little bit, uh, because that's something that I feel like, at least for me and in the circles that I find myself in right now, mm-hmm. that's not something that we talk about a whole lot. Yeah. The idea of prayer. Or when we talk about prayer, it's it's kind of the more framing in terms of mindfulness or meditation mm. or... Um, yeah. And which I think have deep value, but right. um, you you write in your introduction, uh, our worship and our prayers and our way of living are all intimately intertwined. What we do in our prayer affects our beliefs, which in turn affects our very way of being in the world. I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, what your view of, of prayer is, why you wrote this book. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, um, Thank you. I was really happy to see the book come out. Uh, Evangelicals Through Social Action uh, actually uh, published this collection of prayers that is sort of designed to help us think through praying for social issues. Um, I I use the lenses of the Black Lives Matter movement and some of the platform demands as a sort of structure for the book and a way to approach bringing our prayer lives and our conversations with God into conversation with uh, the social justice movements around us, but I think what you what you named in thinking about prayer is is true. I, I think in more progressive circles, we um, maybe drift towards more uh, meditative or centering practices of prayer, which are extremely valuable. Um, the contexts that some of us come from, uh, you, you know, like I remember um, praying with. Uh, an elder of our church, my family and I at the front of our Southern Baptist-ish megachurch when I was a kid, uh, praying for my mom to repent of, of lesbianism and come back to our family, you know. And and this was like the first sort of instance of public prayer that I can remember participating in as a kid. Uh, the same, you know, we have the rhyming prayers uh, in my family too before meals and before going to sleep and even waking up in the morning, which I still say to this day. It sort of uh, steeped me in the knowledge that we can connect to God at any time and for any reason, but I'd never really considered prayer uh, taking on a sort of protest function until probably pretty recently. Um, and and that's, that's, I think, another lens of looking at prayer that uh, folks in activist circles have, have been nourished by for a long time and have even used as an organizing tool that I wasn't previously exposed to. So for instance, uh, my professor Jörg Rieger was telling me about protests that he was helping to organize to unionize workers at Walmart. And so Walmart workers were joining a Bible study that uh, my professor was running and it was talking about themes of labor and justice and trying to foment a sort of consciousness around their rights as workers and spiritual values and uh, sort of approaching the Christianity that these workers practiced in a way that said, hey, this has something to say to you not being able to take a break in the amount that you need to or to be compensated for your work. And so eventually a protest was staged at the Walmart store. The police were called. Security director of the store came to escort my professor and this group of workers off of the property. And York says that that they gathered into a circle and they said, okay, but first we're going to pray. And they started praying, so heads lowered, hands held, and sort of the closing in security officers like stopped to see this prayer circle happening and like sort of crossed their own arms in front of them and were respectfully sort of waiting for this to finish. And York says at that point, the organizer said to the security officers, would would you care to join us in prayer for a second? Which they did giving this protest like a crucial two, three more minutes of life. But the fact that, that this prayer thing could be used as a tool to sort of bring people who are pitted against each other into the same you know, spirit of consciousness for a few minutes, that's powerful. I told the story at the book launch about uh, being at home at my father's house uh, on the night of the Ferguson verdict when Michael Brown was Michael Brown's uh, killer was acquitted and, or excuse me, not acquitted, but uh, the prosecutor said that there wasn't enough to press charges. I remember that night, maybe you remember the same, just like my thumb raw almost from swiping through my phone, like hours, eyes, 
glazed by the brightness of the screen and the darkness of the room around me. And hours and hours, I'm just swiping through social media, furious, sobbing. I had gotten into fights with, with my family members that whole night because of our different views on race and racism. Um, both of my parents were police officers for their whole career, so we definitely have some different perspectives. And I must have been up till five, six in the morning, utterly helpless, paralyzed in my bed, spiraling into the, 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 the righteous, but for me, disorienting fury of Twitter. No one around that I could call in the burbs. And, and my dad knocked on the door of my room around six, and he sat down next to me on my bed. Uh, and we'd been exchanging sharp words that, that whole night. And he, he sort of lied down next to me, and he put his hand on me, and he started to pray. And he said, he said, God, I don't understand why my son is feeling this way. I know that we have different views on this, but I know that you are working in his life and that you've given him a spirit of truth to speak to these issues. And I pray that you can bring us together and our country together in healing and that you might make peace. And he, I don't remember the exact, I'm, I'm sort of constructing from memory that the words that he said, and, and I calmed and I fell asleep and I rested for the first time in, in hours of, of feeling flighted and in a panic. And he just lay there with me praying for until I fell asleep. Um, that was that was powerful. I never thought that this thing could be used not just for a trite thank you to God or asking when I needed something desperate or even a, a centering exercise, but a way to to bridge this gulf that had opened up between our hearts, if only for a night, but mm. when I really needed it. Hmm. There's, there's a line in your introduction that says, I mean, you're talking about this. It says prayer can work in ways that other forms of communication simply cannot. Prayer can gird us and heal us and say to an oppressor, no, I answer to a higher power than you. Mm. Uh, when I read that line, that gave me chills. Like mm. the, that way of thinking about prayer. Yeah as a holy empowering mm. event, holy in, yes. in both ways, WH and, and H, like mm. the, the power within that yeah. is, yes. is, is incredible. It, it feels like a way of claiming mm -hmm. truth, speaking truth to power. Um, yeah. Yes. And, and I think at its best prayer does just that, you know, it can operate. We, you and I have seen prayer, on social media from white Christians after uprisings in Baltimore and Ferguson and St. Louis and, and, and the Facebook and social media posts say, oh, I pray for a return to calm streets and that we can just be at peace again and, and that everything would just calm down. And it's like, so we've seen prayer operate as a sort of, uh, anesthetic sort of forced drugging, opiating effect, like calm it down, just go back to your homes but, I mean, we've also seen it, and, and actually for me that night with my father, it operated as a needed uh, sort of opiate. But we've also seen how prayer, like you said, can let us tap into this undergirding electric spiritual current underneath each of our lives and say, no, there's something above you that I'm going to answer to and that I'm going to draw from. And, and in that sense, be used as adrenaline to fuel social movements and protest and taking a stand for dignity against forces of empire that are saying no, no, no. I feel I, I have like chills right now um, mm. in because I think that it, it's that acknowledgement of I, I grew up in churches where we talk about how God stands on the side of the oppressed. The first shall be last and whatever, mm. but uh, primarily white churches. And I had no, there was no context for, you know, like in Sunday school, it was like, if your sister hits you, like that kind of, mm. and so no, no real like conscious awareness of like what that actually means in a world like ours. Um, mm. And to claim the, the very real power of, yeah, of that, of God, of God standing with the marginalized, God standing with the oppressed and not just kind of in a in a trite way or in that kind of Sunday school yeah. way, but like God is with you, yeah. with us. Um, yes, there's a 
I keep saying the word power, but there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, um, I think you're right. I'm wondering if you could maybe read some of your prayers. Oh, yeah, sure. I would love to. Um, was there, I guess I have a couple in mind, yeah. or was there anything that you were really drawn to? I would love whatever you feel. Absolutely. To. Yeah. Um, let's see. I have a couple. Uh, yeah. Okay. Here's one. For the protection of the body. Holy God, architect of creation, you breathed out the galaxies and the seas and every inch of this universe from the folds behind our ears to the neurons in our minds. It's yours. In calling our world very good, you have called our bodies to be living sacraments for you, bringing justice to bear, truth, and life and in death. Teach us to not fear the unknown, but to celebrate your life in our skin and bones. Guard our flesh from rubber bullets, tear gas, and piercing metal, and protect us from being separated from our bodies, your temples of life, that Jesus' resurrected flesh may be alive in our midst. Amen. And so I wrote that um, sort of thinking of um, the violations that happen routinely to and in the human body. Um, and this book, you know, w was originally drafted uh, in the fall of 2015, so a good year before 2016 election, but definitely still in a season in which we were having public conversations about uh, violence against bodies and against certain kinds of bodies in particular, against trans women of color, against black folk, against uh, indigenous and other people of color. And I wrote this prayer thinking about how these, these acts of violence that we see is constantly documented and inundating us on the news, often committed by members or agents of the state against black people and other people of color. There's sort of um, unmaskings of what's already happening in the U.S. just just sped up very quickly. So, so meaning the calm streets that my friends from Campus Crusade were praying that, or even from the Episcopal Church, were praying that people return to, instead of protest in Ferguson, well, those calm streets were really an already racist and violent state. And if you just collapsed everything that was happening, for instance, indigenous people in the U.S. having around a 30-year less life expectancy than white Americans. Like, that's already happening. And if you just speed it all up into one brief conversation or confrontation, that's how you get a Mike Brown, a Freddie Gray. We're just seeing this, this assault on the body collapse into a very short period of time. And so I sort of wrote that prayer thinking about how um, the assaults on our communities are very related to the attacks on the land, but also our bodies, because they're not... Uh, belonging to the dominant identities that we that we sort of named at the beginning of of our conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is this is interesting because that idea of an embodied spirituality, an embodied faith practice, paying attention to our bodies in very particular ways and in their particularity. Mm. Um, that's something that I feel like has come up a lot on this podcast. Um, mm. And over yes. and over and over again. And, and I also think, like, how how can it not when we're talking about faith and sexuality yes. as a general topic? Um, yes. And, you know, for me, too, the other side, however you want to define that, they're already acknowledging the, the importance of their bodies. Or, or by that I mean, you know, the marches that we saw in Charlottesville, these are, these are histories of confederacy being quoted in the flesh like darren wilson is a confederate flag quoted in a human body being enfleshed into a person and their bodies are being established as what is normal and what is dominant and has every advantage in society and every institution on, on the side of them so i'm with you it's absolutely crucial i think that uh, those of us coming from a different angle can talk honestly about what it means to try and 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 in flesh and quote our, our Christian and our spiritual values in our own bodies. Mm -hmm. And, and that is a very different practice than that kind of trite thoughts and prayers that I think we all are starting <laughs> to get annoyed right. with. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, I wrote in the, I think I write somewhere in the book 
after a public tragedy, these thoughts and prayers appear from every street and tweet corner, like online and in person. This has just become our, our trite currency, as you said. And, and even our president at the time, Barack Obama, I think, after a shooting in California, perhaps, or maybe Colorado, hard to keep track, said our thoughts and prayers are not enough. Um, sort of naming the futility of, of this gesture without actually incarnating any sort of public change. Yeah. I'm trying to think of who said it, but that, I mean, that idea and it's such a quote unquote simple idea, but like the prayer must move us to action. Mm. Um, but that's a very real thing. Like, yes, it has to be both. And, yes. And, you know, part of the project of this book and, and how I've been thinking of prayer for the past couple of years is that, uh, I wouldn't even so clearly bifurcate prayer and action. You know, sometimes sometimes prayer is an action and the action, and sometimes it's not. Um, but sometimes it, it is, you know, in the instance of uh, the Walmart protest or even the, the conversation that my father and I had in prayer. Or, you know, if prayer can be a way of being present and, and growing solidarity with other people and creating healing in that moment, you know, in some ways the action has already been done. Of course... Prayer divorced from those contexts is not enough, and, and, and it may motivate us, I hope, towards physical actions, mm -hmm. too. I'm thinking about how you were, and you write again in your introduction that, you're, that you, you attempted to avoid employing gendered language in these prayers, um, and you've, but you've also included references to the feminine and maternal aspects of God and, and maintaining mm. the historic understanding of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of kind of bringing all of those things together. Uh, thinking about that, thinking about embodiment, uh, and, and what just popped into my mind was I've been seeing a little bit on my Facebook feed uh, from some people who continue to claim that fights for LGBT rights for trans rights, uh, are they, they argue that these are inherently Gnostic things, which I 100% disagree with. Um, but I'd be mm -hmm. curious if you have thoughts about that idea of Gnosticism and embodiment, uh, kind of that same conversation that we were just having. I mean, because you're someone who's, who's been deeply trained within theological traditions. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> but you're on the spot. <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, yeah, I, I think it's an interesting, I mean, this whole Gnosticism thing, you have people from the right accusing the left of being Gnostics. I'm thinking of Andy Crouch's article uh, in Christianity Today, where he says that trans identity is a form of Gnosticism. Uh, I'm thinking of N.T. Wright's recent comments where he sort of levies this at trans folks and, and um, people who celebrate non-binary gender as, as Gnosticism. And then Gnosticism is also sort of cast from the left to the right. Sometimes uh, sort of how the more conservative factions in the church want to spirit away suffering or ignore our bodies. And then I, I'm also starting to see some from the left sort of reclaim Gnosticism as an alternate knowledge. Um, so I think it's definitely, for the past, I don't know, 2,000 years, been like the hot word yeah. in Christianity. <laughs> um, I, would, I would say, you know, to, to kind of throw my own hat into the ring on this conversation, by doing this sort of body naming, celebration, reclamation work as people of color, as queer folks, um, as people with other marginalized identities in a society and in a church that really is dedicated to stamping out difference in identity, it it is a, a sort of defense against Gnosticism. If, if Gnosticism is uh, falling into secret knowledge or spiriting away the, the flesh and the body into um, a desiccated, separate existence from the flesh, that's not what we're about. We're, we're trying to resist... Uh, dissolving into whiteness. We're trying to resist um, being forced into heterosexism and, and cisgender identity. And so like these, these moves all strike me as postures that point us away from the kind of Gnosticism that I think some of your friends are talking about. These, 
these are actions that are asking us to get grounded in, in the dirt under our fingernails and, and our skin and in the bodies that we move and live around in every day. There's, there's no us without our body. That's, that's an ancient Christian value. And, and I think that celebrating the crooks uh, the, rather than nooks and crevices and, and crannies of the body and what it means to have a body um, is, is sort of going against what your friends are mm-hmm. suggesting. It's a tough. It's a tough conversation, though. I hope I hope I've expressed a, a gem of something that makes sense, but it it is confusing, <laughs> right? Because I mean, it's a word that gets tossed back and forth, as you were Absolutely. saying, absolutely everywhere. And I and I also feel like a lot of times I don't even know because it, it's been used so often in so many different contexts. I wonder if we're all just working with the definition of narcissism of kind of whatever we want it to mean. Because I feel like I have an idea of what it means, but it's probably not rooted in a, <laughs> in a good reading of what mm. Gnosticism truly is slash was. And, and um, so anyway, that's, you know, I, I think if there's one caution for um, maybe people where I sort of place myself theologically, which is more towards the left, perhaps um, it's that Gnosticism is also about, in addition to, I think an aversion to, incarnation. It's, it's also about um, an attraction to gnosis, to secret knowledge that only a small group of people are entitled to. Uh, and so just think of like a very esoteric, uh, hidden away secret truth. I think this is found maybe in a lot of new agey spaces too, but that only a small slice of the population will get and everyone else is hopelessly lost. I think, you know, just thinking of my own personal um, areas for growth, there have been times when I felt like that, uh, like because I under- have an understanding of things such as critical race theory or post-colonialism or like other kinds of discourse that allow me to really interrogate questions of race, gender, sexuality. I, I think there have been times that I've fallen into the trap that this knowledge could not be known by everyone or, or would not get a wider hearing and, and uh, actually, we shouldn't sort of be secreting and storing away this special knowledge, but trying to share it with other people and further decolonization more widely. So I suppose that would be a sort of caution to a kind of Gnosticism that um, sutures up this kind of understanding and doesn't want to share it with folks for whom it would be life-giving and life-changing news. Mm-hmm. And I feel like to bring it back to your prayers, like I feel like that's one thing that you're doing within this book. Mm-hmm of sharing a different way to pray. Uh, yes. Uh, and I mentioned the language that you use, your very intentional language. And I'm curious if, you, if you'd maybe be willing to maybe talk about that a little bit of the role of language in our prayers. Yeah. Uh, and and how we think about God and, and language and maybe even broader than that. Um, yeah. Because you were very intentional in these prayers. Mm-hmm. Right. As you named, I I was trying to find a balance between staying grounded in the resources of the Christian tradition and also, um, I think, recognizing that the Christian tradition has chosen to seep itself in patriarchal uh, images and really preference these kind of ways of talking about God. And it, it was sort of difficult to thread my way through that. And so I tried some things um, that Ultimately, I don't think all of the the language things I was playing with worked. For instance, I I think I omitted Lord from this collection of prayers, just trying to be sensitive to uh, feminist theology's concerns that this is a patriarchal term and rendering. Um, And so I try to do some new and old things with the language. And ultimately, I probably would have done some things differently in that realm. But I was sort of motivated overall by the understanding that language is, you know, is life. John Boswell talks about the power of, of, of the word and of the word incarnated in Jesus um, as that which changes minds and convinces people to, um, to join God's path. I think it's m- perhaps Maya Angelou who says that words are not just words, but they, they stick to surfaces. And so you use them and then they stick to the, the rugs and the curtains and the walls of the room, and then they eventually stick to you and into you, you know. 
And so there's, there's a real power around language. It's this thing that we can speak life or death to others with simultaneously. And so I was trying to balance that understanding with an admission in my own life that I really wasn't praying to God about the things that I cared or struggled with most. Um, I sort of noticed taking into account the way I was praying, both in church and in private, that I was like presenting a sanitized or idealized version of the things that were going on in my life when I would talk to God in prayer. And like that began to really make me uncomfortable because in prayer, especially in conversation between you and the divine, this should be the time when you can be most unclothed. And I really wasn't allowing my anxieties and concerns to look directly in the eye with the way that I was talking to God. So part of this motivation was to place the things that I was worried about and that I cared about, um, murder and incarceration of trans people in our society, the internalized racism and white supremacy I feel as a person of color, um, how heterosexuality tries to break off our limbs and contort us into its image. Like these things that I'm thinking about family troubles, uh, depression, loneliness, like I wasn't actually praying about them. And then I, I came to a point where I thought, well, if I act like or believe that prayer is important for these sectors of my life, why am I not bringing these wider social concerns to bear on prayer? Why am I not talking about the environmental destruction that is being wreaked around us? Or why am I not praying for uh, a resistance against people who say things like all lives matter or for solidarity between different communities of color uh, and then to sexism in the church um, for victims of different kinds of assault and for families healing from shootings. And so that sort of uh, approach made me want to um, try to come up with a framework for talking to God in that way. And that was the kind of seed for the book. A lot of the, the prayers are structured in the style of collects, which use very specific uh, frameworks and language, uh, often drawn from Anglican or Roman Catholic traditions, to sort of collect people's prayers and present them to God. Um, and so that's been a cool and helpful tool and framework to use also, thinking that there's not just unmitigated oppression and languishing uh, violence in the Christian tradition, but there are resources there that we can draw from to address pressing social issues in our context today. I'm sitting here and, and thinking about, I think for, for those of us who, I really, I really dislike the word triggering, but that's mm-hmm. the only word that's coming to mind right now of where prayer can be. There's a lot wrapped up in it. Yeah. Uh, and it's something that I think sometimes I, I know for me, you, you move away from some of those practices that remind yeah. you of things. Yes. Um, of of environments that that were not healthy or beneficial Uh, yes and i know so many people myself included of where prayer is one is one of those things yeah and and for someone who's trying to in a way reclaim prayer as being something that us us queer and, and marginalized and and oppressed um people can find solidarity in for someone who's who's skeptical who's hurt who's maybe wanting to dip their toe back into prayer um do you have thoughts or or i mean what Mm -hmm. i i mean i don't i don't know what your story is around prayer um was that a journey for you to, to come back into prayer? Has that something that's kind of always been with you? And, and for people who are on a journey like that, what would you yeah. s- say to them? Um, that's a great question. I, it has been a journey for me. You know, I, um, I grew up in sort of a Roman Catholic tradition that gave me a lot of really structured frameworks for prayer. Um, which I used and still use, but I didn't and don't always feel that I can crawl into the cracks of those and, and make them mine. Um, I think the, the resources I, I have for my Catholic background have been more uh, s- strict in some ways. And then, you know, like you alluded to, um, in evangelical spaces, you know, such as those that I also grew up in and, and participated in as a young adult, too, 
um, prayer was was a weapon at times, um, a, a, an emblem of spiritual abuse, uh, something that was turned against others and against me with um, with with really devastating consequences. You know, I think I think abuse is is evil and spiritual abuse is has has the potential to cause such harm because in prayer and in in church community we i don't know it just it affects us on a very deep level you know i re- i remember praying one time at a uh, parachurch ministry conference um we were praying in the new year together with my campus ministry hundreds 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 of us and i i asked for prayers for the Catholic Church. Um, and this was an evangelical group I was with. And our, our prayer leader started praying and he said, uh, Father God, we ask for your prayers for uh, the Catholic Church, uh, which is going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> and my eyes like shot open. Like, you know that feeling, like somebody's praying and your head bowed, you're like, you're devout, your eyes closed and then pop. Something happens, you like snap up and you like look around, your eyes dart and you're like, did anyone else hear that shit? Yeah. But no one, like you're the only eye like popping around. So, you know, I've come from those kinds of prayer too and and it made it really hard to talk to God um, or to talk or to pray with others for a really long time. Uh, I was on a retreat for seminarians of color in my denomination a few years ago and I was sort of expressing that I wanted to take some time this retreat to um, dive into prayer a little bit more and one of the other attendees said here's a simple exercise I do and it was more akin to that centering meditative like beautifully liberating kind of prayer that you also described at the beginning of the interview but she just said you spend five minutes maybe you start with one minute maybe you start with three and then you go to five and ten and you just think about how beloved you are by God, just how much God loves you. Um, and I tried it that night, and I felt like flooded, you know, after a few minutes of with this like heat in my body and like this knowledge that that this couldn't stay a secret knowledge that it it was powerful. I hadn't experienced that. Um, I hadn't experienced that in a really long time. And I think that was a sort of reminder that this is a power that's available to you um, at any time, but often I think has to come through other people. And so like for me, it's, it's, it's hard for me to pray very often. Um, and it's even harder for me to ask people to pray for me or to pray with me. But I've started making it a practice to ask friends to not just like, oh, pray for me, you know, like later, but like, hey, would you say a prayer with me? Would you say a prayer for me? Um, obviously, I think that's easier to get away with in a seminary space like I'm in or in a church environment. Um, but even if you have friends and connections online and, and, and you're struggling with something um, and you and you think that that it's bigger than just you or bigger than you and and the person you're talking to, like ask them to send a prayer to you um, when you don't have the words. I I love, you know, the idea that um, I've heard, I think Rachel Held Evans and others talk about like the liturgy, you know, breathes for you when you don't have the air in your lungs to breathe yourself. And I think prayer, prayer can be used for a similar purpose. So it's, it's been cool to see how, how prayer has, has functioned in, in a sort of healing sense um, in that way. I, I write prayers at my church uh, as well. And um, I, got a, I got an email from a parishioner just last week who, um, I, I, I used the prayer from my book. Uh, let me see if I can find it. It's, it's called For Mental Health and Emotional Wellness. And it's, it opens, God, rupture in us the false bravery that teaches us that we alone are enough, that without you and your gifts, we can even survive. And then it goes on to sort of, you know, name the things that I needed and didn't receive, you know, when I was younger, a therapy, treatment, medication, community. And um, I, got a, I got an email from a, a church member who heard the first line of that prayer and, and, and said, when I heard the phrase false bravery, I broke down and knew that I needed to go to healing prayer and, and talk to someone after the service. You know, this, 
this was prayer being used in a way that that caused both of us healing, um, but without other people praying for each other and sort of challenging one another to to be more centered in, in prayer and honest about our needs, um, that might not have happened. So, yeah, yeah. It, it feels like an invitation to like a a shared vulnerability that yes. is stepping away from the bravado that I think sometimes prayer can often encourage. Yes. I think when, especially when you have one person praying corporately, I, I think of Jesus talking about uh, spiritual leaders who, who pray loudly um, and mm. the bravado that can be in that. Um, this is a shift into that mutual recognition of need and naming it. Yes. Mm. It's a beautiful thing. There's something very, very false and metallic about the kinds of prayer that happen on those street corners or the tweet corners, like I call them. I mean, you know, I I, um, I created a, a small group at my church this this last spring, and we spent a few weeks together looking at um, different examples of prayer and how it's been used to sort of foster energy or oppression you know we we delved into uh prayers given by political leaders so like the republican national convention benediction in 2016 um cracked open uh what what is referred to as a slave catechism that the episcopal church used in the years before the civil war uh, sort of call and response uh, given to an enslaved person uh, the catechumenate uh, and their instructor on their spiritual status before God and place in society. And reading that with my small group, I mean, um, brutal. This is the kind of prayer that, that people who have gone through reparative therapy, so-called, are, are familiar with, you know? And yet there, and yet there may be another way and, and, and other kinds of entering into that vulnerability that you named. I really like that. And, you know, I think I see this sort of reclamation of, of um, prayer as a part of these very needed campaigns to say to uh, the factions of the church that have claimed them for far too long, like, no, this doesn't belong to you. This was never yours, and you're not even using it in the right way, you know. So I see some of the work of, you know, the Reformation Project, um, which you know that I work with, as sort of reclaiming the wing of, of the church that has used scripture in a dehabilitating and dishonest way to sort of seed oppression and, and the marginalization of LGBTQ folks. And I, I see this as a sort of tandem venture into the realm of prayer, saying that, that no, this is not this, this steely, assured way of forcing smiles and clamping down on marginalized. This is not what prayer has been used for in the past always and it's not what it should be about and i think there are there are so many areas and arenas in which um, we can and should be plugging in and, and questioning how the church has conducted itself in these ways so it's it's exciting to be sort of conversation partner with other people who are who are rethinking you know like like your podcast and you were talking about the way that our bodies have been rendered and understood or the way that scripture or tradition or other values have been sort of misaligned by the church. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if you'd have a prayer that you could share to kind of close us out. I yes. To maybe put you on the spot, but <laughs> no, 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 no worries. I, yeah, I, uh, I think this is an example of, um, reappropriating tradition. I, I, I wrote a prayer for justice, which was inspired by, uh, the prayer attributed to St. Francis. I think it's a prayer for peace, sort of, trying to couple justice and peace, right? No justice, no peace. Um, So this is called a prayer for justice. God, make us instruments of your justice. Where there is a false and untenable peace, let us sow dissent. Where there is injustice, fury. Where there is oppression, hope. Where there is false fluorescence, profound darkness. Where there is social depression, life, where there is crime and poverty, a sustainable economic infrastructure. Grant that we may not so much seek to be uplifted as to uplift, 
to be seen as to see others. For it is in protesting the sin of the system that we can more fully acknowledge our own sin. It is in demanding justice of the powerful that we live out God's demands for us. And it is in rejecting the American dream that we are born into God's dream. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Kenji. Thank you, Matthias. You can pick up a copy of Kenji's book over at Evangelicals for Social Action's website, evangelicalsforsocialaction.org. And you can follow Kenji over on Twitter and Instagram at A Fresh Mind. That's at A Fresh Mind. Chorology is on Twitter and Instagram at ChorologyPod, or you can tweet me directly at Matthias Roberts. Chorology is produced with support from Natalie England, Tim Schrader, Christian Hayes, and other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Chorology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support. A really easy way to help support Chorology is by leaving a rating or a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head over to MatthiasRoberts.com review, and it'll take you right there. As always, I'd love to hear from you. If you have ideas about what you want to hear on the podcast or just want to say hi, reach out. I'll get back to you. And until next week, y'all, bye. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.